Well, greetings, beloved friends, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, we share together in his grace and in his mercy as we come to consider the scriptures which are set before us today. Uh, In particular, we're going to look at the reading from Acts chapter 11. And if you can find that in your pew Bible, you might like to be able to refer to it uh, because Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 tell one combined story and it could be told under this heading, uh, Jerusalem, we've got a problem. Some of us might be old enough to remember the Apollo 13 uh, tragedy or it wasn't a tragedy, it was an averted tragedy. Some of us may have seen the film but uh, the captain of the spacecraft relayed back Houston, we've had a problem. Well, Jerusalem's had an ongoing problem and uh, the problem that emerged here in these two chapters was going to trouble the church later in the New Testament. That's why we've got books like Galatians and Colossians and it troubles us today for a variety of reasons and I hope we'll see why. But uh, before we actually go into the sermon, I think uh, it's not a deliberate mistake but can you spot the mistake on that title slide? Yeah, it's the 28th of April. I realised that at about midnight last night but it was too late to change the slide and together with uh, Harold and Vaughan we've been down at General Pastors Conference and General Synod in Adelaide where it was very, very cold and we're very glad to be back. Um, But with all of the days being sort of strung together out of sequence, Uh, I've lost days and I've lost dates. I've got all sorts of days wrong but I do know, I believe, uh, that today is Sunday. Is that true? Uh, And because it's Sunday and because we're still in Easter, uh, in Easter season, I can say to you, the Lord is risen. And yes, he is risen indeed. And that actually changes everything. Uh, Even our confusion and even our perplexity about certain things, is changed by the fact that Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And before we go into the other things that I have to show you this morning on the PowerPoints, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, You don't have to answer out loud. You can if you like, Rita or Mel. The questions are, did Jesus actually come to do something... Or did he come to make something possible? You see the difference? Did he actually come to accomplish a work or did he come in the hope that something would follow on from what he's done? Now, if you think that Jesus came in order to make something possible, we are still living outside the gospel. Jesus actually accomplished everything that he set out to do and the resurrection is the amen to all that he had planned and purposed. And so in that resurrection, whether we realise it or not, we are living in a changed world. Everything is different because of that resurrection. And that is the battle of faith. We are living in a world in which Jesus has done 
what he has set out to do and we're living in a world in which he is the Lord of all kings and princes of the earth and has sent his spirit into the earth, poured out on all flesh. But from our point of view, we struggle by faith, we struggle in faith to know that it is so. We often live, I think, perhaps I'm speaking of myself more than you, please forgive me if I am, we often live as though we have to get God to do something which he's not yet planned and purposed, either by our prayers or by our plans or by our piety. We have to get God into action. But in fact what you read in the Bible and the New Testament in particular is that when Jesus was raised up from the dead on the third day and he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we'll remember in a couple of weeks' time, then from that point on everyone else was in catch-up mode. Peter, Paul and the other apostles were not trying to get God to do something but were trying to catch up with what God had already done. And sometimes the speed and the method of God's movement left them flummoxed. Peter for all of his, of his impulsiveness that we read about in other parts of the Gospels, Peter couldn't cope with the speed of change. Now, hands up who handles change really well. I don't think any of us handle change all that well, do we? Um, just try and change the order of service or what time the church meets or when we speak about change in some segments of the church, it's almost like you've sworn in public. But the disciples and Peter himself were faced with earth-shattering changes which left them open-mouthed at the speed of God's movement and the breadth of his activity. Put the thing just slightly differently. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship which he has created in Christ Jesus for good works. You remember that verse? But the important bit that I want to emphasise this morning is which he has prepared beforehand. Not which we decide to do but which he has prepared. You are not a self-defining creature trying to navigate your way through the world. God has prepared and planned works for you to do, things for you to do from before the foundation of the world and our whole life is catching up to what he's doing. Now, let me just put any uneasy minds to rest here. Perhaps there's someone here today who wonders how it is they've ended up here. Like how, how it is they've ended up in Trinity Lutheran Church, Cairns, on the 28th, not the 27th, at the 10am service. Or it may be that you've wondered, how have you ended up here at this place in your life? How have you ended up here at this phase of transition in your life? And one of my very old uh, esteemed friends who's now gone to be with the Lord said to me once, Noel, if you ever doubt that you're in the place that the Lord wants you to be, 
Just look back over your life and look at all the things that could not have happened unless God had done it. And you'll pretty quickly come to the conclusion that you could be nowhere else other than where you are. Does that make sense? Whatever our decisions have been, whatever our sins have been, whatever the decisions and sins of other people, God's not locked out of the picture. God's on the move and he's doing something. But back to our text. Jerusalem, we've got a problem. And the problem looks like that. It's a sheet being lowered from the sky. Well, if you want a more sanctified version, the problem looks like that. As soon as you see something in stained glass, you know it must be true. And as soon as you see something with a sort of long flowing beard and biblical robes, well, that gives it more authenticity. But actually, God's got a good sense of humour and I think probably looked more like that. Peter, who had gone up on the house to pray, well, we're not told that, (laughs) he'd gone up in the house possibly to have a sleep while lunch was being prepared, flat roof house, get a bit of cool breeze and he fell into a trance and he was shown a vision of all of these animals coming down from the sky in a sheet being held. So, in other words, God was giving him something. And this vision was accompanied by words. And the words said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. To which Peter's response was, Not in a million years. Now, why would Peter's response be that? Why would he look at all of these animals and say, you're not going to get any of that on my plate, God. Thank you very much. Well, because Peter was an orthodox, observant Jew and right back into Jewish history there were distinctions about what animals were clean and unclean, what animals could be eaten and not and even those that could be eaten, how they were to be prepared. And in this vision, Peter saw everything that was unclean and profane being offered to him on a plate or on a sheet and a word from heaven saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And an affirmation, Do not call unclean what I have called clean. Now, it's a bit hard for us to get our heads around this. We've got a few different cultures here today. Would that be true? I can't pick exactly from which culture everyone comes. But every culture has within it certain things that are sacrosanct, certain things that must be done or must not be done. There are taboos about certain things sometimes about what you can eat or not eat, sometimes about people you can speak to or not speak to, sometimes about places you can go or not go, sometimes about ceremonies you can participate in or not participate in. Does that ring bells with you from all of the different cultures that we see around Cairns and in our midst here today? And if you try and touch or change one of those in your culture, what happens? 
Well, wars have been fought over it, haven't they? Blood has been spilled. Because those things don't come just as sort of social interactions, they come with a certain sense of spiritual authority. And you could get no higher spiritual authority than God's. This is the problem expressed in a different form. This is a stone from one of the Herodian era temples or synagogues perhaps and it has a nice welcoming message on it which says, No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. Divine service, Hell, Trinity, Lutheran Church, 10am. But if you dare come in through the door, we'll kill you. It's not a very welcoming message, is it? But what if this differential, this differential between where you could go and where you couldn't and who was welcome to come into a building and who wasn't and who could eat what animals, what if all of that had an Old Testament command attached to it? What if God himself had put these things in place? See, Peter's problem was this. He had lived with a rule book all his life and he was sure that God had put that rule book in place for him and for his people. And in being shown the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven, in Peter's mind, it was like God ripping up the rule book and tossing it to the winds. You could understand then why he was a bit perplexed and troubled and why he took a bit of persuading. Because if you just glance down chapter 10 in the book of Acts and glance through into chapter 11, you find that God went to a lot of trouble to orchestrate this meeting. Got this man called Cornelius in his household and he's receiving uh, instructions from the Lord in terms of dreams and visions and angelic visitors and you've got Peter who's in another city in Joppa and you've got Peter receiving these visions from the Lord with instructions and then you get someone else sent to, uh, from Cornelius's people to where Peter's staying and they knock on the door and say, let us in. And Peter says, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. They didn't blow the house down, but they explained what was happening and so Peter welcomed them in and then the next day he went to Cornelius's house and he crossed a boundary. He went into the house of a man by Peter's rule book who was ritually unclean. He crossed a boundary. And as he went in, expecting to find who knows what, he found a group of people to whom God had already come, waiting there, ready to hear the gospel. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter starts cranking up his best sermon 
and he stumbles in saying, I do not doubt but that, which is probably not the best introduction to a sermon. I do not doubt but that. doesn't really grab your attention. And dear old Peter, before he's got to the end of the sermon with the main illustration that brings on the heartstrings, you know, before he's only halfway through, the Holy Spirit falls on all of those in the house. They believe the gospel and they all want to be baptised. Jerusalem, we've got a problem. These people outside our boundary seem to have the same experience of God's grace that we have. So what do we do with them now? Do we bring them inside our boundary and educate them according to what's clean and unclean, where they can go and where they can't go, what they can do or what they can't do? That's why you've got books like Galatians in the Bible to work all of that out. But Peter has to go back to the church in Jerusalem, the sort of big mother church, the Kremlin, like going to Adelaide for General Synod, and he has to report on what's happened because there are people in the Jerusalem church who think, Peter, you've gone too far. You're getting us in trouble you're crossing boundaries which should not be crossed. You're welcoming people in who should not be welcomed. They don't speak our language. They don't follow our culture. They don't know our traditions and they certainly don't observe the law of God. So Peter has to make a defence. That's what we've read in chapter 11. And he ends up saying, well, who was I to hinder God? basically saying, it's not my idea, I didn't want to go but God made it very clear this was on his agenda and if God sent me and God gave them the gift of his Holy Spirit and they received the forgiveness of sins just like we did, well who am I to stop that? So they all quieted down and they praised God saying, God has given to these nations outside the boundary the gift of repentance leading to life. And so the Apostle Paul later says there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. He says the old boundary wall with its curse, with its judgmentalism, with its separateness has been torn down, he says in Ephesians, and there is now just one new humanity. So, I am brother to all of you who come from Papua New Guinea or Africa or some other part of Australia or share a different culture. I and you are brothers, not because we share the same culture, but because Christ has come to us. Our meeting point, beloved, our meeting point is not your culture or my culture. Our meeting point is Christ because he sort of rides over all of our cultures. In your culture, there will be things that are wrong. In my culture, there will be things that are wrong. Jesus dampens those down. In your culture, there will be things that are beautiful and right And in my culture there will be things that are beautiful or right and Jesus sort of lifts those up 
But it's Jesus that's the meeting point, not our cultures. Does that make sense to you? It's what one theologian called cultural meltdown. No longer Jew nor Gentile, no longer Scythian, slave, free, all one in Christ Jesus. There's a collection of walls. You might like one of those around your house. There might be one there that you would prefer to have than another. I think walls are pretty comfortable places for us because we think that we can be safe behind them and we think that we can govern who comes in and who goes out and we think perhaps from behind the wall we have a clearer view of life than if we didn't have a wall where it would all get a little bit chaotic. But dear old Peter, he was taken outside of his boundaries, outside of his walls. And I don't know what Peter looked like and I don't know what Cornelius and his friends looked like. That's an impression of them there. But the meeting point was not Cornelius's culture, nor was it Peter's culture. It was Christ. Christ brought Cornelius out from behind his wall and Peter out from behind his wall and they met in an open place. That open place, that spacious, roomy place is called grace. It's called the grace of God where he doesn't count Peter's sins against him or Cornelius' sins against him, or the cultural misunderstandings from them both. They don't, he doesn't account those sins and misunderstandings against anyone. He brings you and me and us all God's people into this wide open space called the grace of God. Here's a picture of the same event. It's actually looks like a Rembrandt painting but it's painted by someone from Rembrandt's school apparently. I can't tell the difference. And it's a picture of Peter going to preach to Cornelius. But what do you notice? If you compare that picture to that picture... See, in that one, you've got some realistic representation, at least it's tried to be, of what a Roman centurion looked like and what Peter might have looked like as a Jewish fisherman. But what do you see in that one? Peter doesn't look like a Jewish fisherman, does he? And the Roman centurion doesn't look like a Roman soldier, And is that because the people of Rembrandt's day didn't have a clue what Peter might have worn or what the Romans might have worn? No, that's not the point. The point is, here is Rembrandt or one of his students saying all those years ago, if we were to see this encounter happening today, it would be like an eastern potentate, you know, a, a Turkish ruler or someone from that part of the world 
meeting one of our own soldiers and there in that place meeting in a way that transforms both their cultures. Because what Peter learned back in Cornelius' house, you and I have to learn every day. It's not locked away in the pages of the New Testament. God is doing more in this world than you can ever imagine. And he's doing in your life far and away and more abundantly than you could ever ask or hope for or think. And it's not for you to try and say, what's the direction that I'm going to plot for my life? It's actually for you to say, Christ has finished his work on the cross, Christ has brought about a new situation and Christ is taking me to the nations and the nations to me Christ is taking us to one another. He's breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's why sometimes your life is very messy and uncomfortable. It's not because someone else has got their hands on your life, it's because Christ has. And as he's breaking down those barriers and walls from behind which you shoot arrows at one another or from behind which you peek out and think, oh, I don't like the look of them. As Christ is doing that, he's also bringing us a revelation of what he's done, that there's a new heaven and a new earth, that there's only one new humanity in Christ Jesus. Rembrandt or that person in his art school was trying to express that in the terms of the costumes of his day. Here we are in shorts and thongs and T-shirts. We're learning the same lesson. But that's a charcoal sketch of the same picture and you might think, ah, that was the preparation sketch that Rembrandt did or his follower did. In fact, it was done in 2011. The date's on the side. I don't think Rembrandt was alive then, well at least not on the earth, he might be in heaven. But often an artist will do a sketch, won't they? And the sketch gives the outline but doesn't give the full picture, is that true? And from our point of view, often we see the sketch but not the full picture. Beloved, I'm here to tell you, whichever part of the sketch you're caught up in at the moment, God has the full picture. He's the artist. He knows the end from the beginning. And he's not asking you to fill in the details or colour in between the lines. He's asking you simply to trust and to watch as the full pictures unfold and as it is, you'll see him doing things in your life and the life of this congregation and this nation which you never believed. But he's not going to let us stay behind our walls, not denominationally, not culturally, not personally. He's going to open all of that up to be the arena of his grace, which it really is in Christ Jesus. So may the Lord bless to us these words and may he take them by his Holy Spirit, to be truly living words in our heart and our experience. Amen.